Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. Yes, we've made it to the last chapter. That doesn't mean we're done. It just means we've made it to the last chapter. Huh? Second John. <laughs> it's shorter. <laughs> uh, I don't normally tell people when I'm going to be absent because there's some people who don't come. Uh, but I'm going to be gone next week, and I would encourage all of you to come. David, who led the music, is going to be teaching. He asked me a while back if he could teach some Sunday because he has taught before on creation, and he wants to do that, so he'll be teaching next week. So come to class. Next week, well, I leave on Tuesday, we're going to Colorado for our whole family. There will be 23 of us in one house. We'll see how that goes. It'll be fun. I don't know if I, I told some of you, um, the kids put this together for Teresa and my 40th anniversary, which will be in October. But given the fact that we have a number of teachers in the family, we can't do October. So we're doing next week. And so the original idea was that they weren't going to tell Teresa. And then I finally, I mean, they told me, I said, I'm not sure we can get all of us to Colorado without somebody figuring it out. So they told her at Christmas, and this is where we're going. At least it's cool, and it's been raining every day. I don't know what rain is. We get to the fifth chapter of the book of 1 John. He is continuing to repeat himself in different ways to make sure we understand what he's saying. I really only have one purpose in today's lesson, and that is to convince you of the truth of six words. If I can do that, I will have accomplished something, but I'm not sure I can do that. But we'll get to that in just a moment. If you remember last week's lesson, we continue to talk about loving each other, leave, loving the members of the church, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. We had talked about that five weeks ago. We talked about what love was. Then we talked about loving the brothers. And then John goes, oh, wait a minute, but remember to test the spirits because there's some bad spirits out there telling people to do bad stuff. And then he got back to love. And guess what we're going to talk about today? Love. We're going to talk about love. He is going to return to talking about keeping the commandments of God. Remember, however many lessons ago it was, he had two tests to see if, in fact, we really know God. One is that we keep his commandments. One is that we love the brothers. But how do we test the Spirit? By those who confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and is God. So today he's going to tie all of those together. Loving the brothers, loving God, keeping the commandments, and acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he's going to bring up something else that ties all this together, and that is faith. So that's what we're going to do, chapter 5. Everyone who believes 
that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. What does it mean to be a Christian? To confess that Jesus Christ has been born of God, is the Son of God, came in the flesh to die for our sins. And everyone who makes that confession is born of God, and we are to love each other. It's pretty simple. Now, we had a talk about this several weeks ago, that it isn't just a matter of saying these words, Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he's the Son of God. I'm in. No. It is a fact living this out in your everyday life. It is believing this. More about that in just a moment when we talk about faith. So, he continues, whoever lo- everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Love again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, is it just me or is that backwards? Earlier he said... This is how we know that we love God when we love the brothers. Now he's saying this is how we know that we love each other when we love God and keep his commandments. How do I demonstrate my love to you? I love God and I keep God's commandments. That's a strange way of putting it together. But remember, we have to remember what love is and what love isn't. Love isn't just having warm, fuzzy feelings toward people. Love that is somehow separated from the righteousness of God is not true love. Love is connected. I love you when I love God. When I keep God's commandments, I am demonstrating love to you. Remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You know, right, that the religious scholars of the time would sit around and argue, okay, which of the commandments is the most important? You may have engaged in some of those discussions. You know, we look at the Bible and we go, okay, which verse is most important? And you know this conversation went on. So, of course, they came to Jesus and said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is summed up in these two. And the guy said, yeah, that's a good answer. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, forget the rest of the law, just love. No, he said, love is the summary of keeping the law. If I keep the law, I am loving you. If I don't murder you, If I don't commit adultery, if I don't lie to you, if I don't take your stuff, if I don't even covet your stuff, if I honor my parents, 
If I love God, I am loving you. There is no separation there. We want to make a distinction between those. I can love people or I can be righteous. No, there is no such distinction in the scripture. John says, how do we know? How do we know that we love each other? By loving God and by keeping God's commandments. Here we go. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And here comes the words. And his commandments are not burdensome. If I can convince you of that, I will have accomplished something. But you know what? I don't think I can convince you of that. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of time as recorded in the Bible. Adam and Eve are in the garden and God gives them a commandment. See that tree over there? Don't eat it. Now, we in tradition say it was an apple tree, probably not, but it was a tree of some sort. And God says, don't eat that fruit. Guess what happened? Satan came along, tempted Eve, Eve dragged Adam into it, they ate the fruit. I might as well get in trouble. There was a command and they broke that command. Throughout history, God has dealt with humanity by giving them instructions about what they ought or ought not do. There were certain things that you were not permitted to do, and there were certain things that you were required to do. So the nation of Israel comes out of bondage in Egypt, and God gives them a list of instructions. Now, you and I think of the Ten Commandments, but there were actually a lot more instructions, a lot more instructions. There were things you could eat, there could, were things you couldn't eat. There were things you could touch, there were things you couldn't touch. There were things you could do on the Sabbath day, there were things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. There were relationships that you could have, there were relationships you couldn't have. They were relationships what you could wear. They were dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Depending on how you count, there were 600 and something of these rules just given in the Old Testament. Now, the nation of Israel, Israel and then Judah, were carried off into captivity. Uh, they came back from captivity the land had been overrun by the Samaritans, the half-breeds, and all of this stuff. And, you know, people are doing their own thing. And this group comes up and says, we need to keep God's law. We need to be very meticulous in keeping God's law. This group were known as the Pharisees. And you know what? This sounds like a good idea to me. Okay? God told you to do something, you ought to do it. And so the Pharisees come along and they say, here are the rules. 
And just to make sure you don't break that rule, I'm gonna put another rule to keep you close from that rule so you don't break the rule. And I'm gonna give you another rule to keep you from breaking that rule so you won't break that. And here we come. And Jesus succumbs and says, you've taken this huge weight and you've put it on the people. You have burdened them. But Jesus also says something different. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We preached through that earlier in the year in, the, in church. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You're not getting into the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what the average person is sitting there thinking? I couldn't keep the original law. I can't keep the law that the Pharisees added on top of that law. And now you're telling me I've got to beat all of that or I can't make it in? I'm toast. I might as well just give up. And then we begin to understand that Jesus came and died to provide us a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Go read the book of Romans. That's what it's all about. It isn't a matter of me obtaining some level of righteousness. It is me accepting the righteousness that Jesus has provided for us. Whew, I am off the hook. But here comes John. And by the way, it's not just in 1 John. It's in the book of John. How do we show our love for God, we do it by keeping the commandments. Oh gosh, here we are again. We're right back where we started. I had this mountain of rules and regulations that were a burden to me, and here you are sneaking the list back in. You thought I was over that. But no, here it is. You're stuck with a list. So what does it mean that it's not burdensome? Well, you know, we could say, well, it's just a shorter list. Okay? Over here they have 600 and something. I'll give you, I'll make up a number, 50. So we've gone from 600 to 50. It's less burdensome, right? But it's still a burden. Because guess what? You couldn't keep the 600, and you're probably not going to keep the 50. So what we end up with in our modern thinking is a couple of possibilities. We want to make the list so short that we have some hope of fulfilling the list. Or we just give up and say, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And we become good old-fashioned 
antinomians. Remember our discussion about them weeks and weeks ago. There is no law. But you know what? It clearly says keep the commandments. If you love God, if you love the brothers, if you love the fellow believers, you will keep God's commandments. We're done. We're toast. We can't do it. So in what sense is that law a burden and this keeping of the commandments is not a burden? And that's what we need to understand. The first difference is simply this. We do not keep God's commandments in order to be saved. Shall I repeat that? We do not keep God's commandments in order to be saved. If we believe that my salvation is dependent upon a level of performance of my behavior, I am going to be burdened my entire life. Because I'm going to reach a point and I'm going to go, I can't do it. I am lost. And I fall into the depths of despair. That's what the Old Testament burden was. Remember the book of Galatians. The whole book. Paul would go share the gospel with some community, in this case in Galatia. And behind him would come the Judaizers, and they would say, yeah, to be, but to be a real Christian, you have to become a real Jew first. And to become a real Jew, you have to follow the Jewish laws. So you can't be a Christian, you can't be a believer, unless you follow the commandments. Here comes the burden back on their shoulders. And Paul gets ticked off at them. Literally. I mean, it gets brutal. Okay? You're going to force circumcision on them? Why don't you just cut the whole thing off and be done with it? <laughs> he says that. I didn't make that up. Why? Because they're putting the burden back where it shouldn't be. As a means of salvation. Number one, we do not Follow the commands of God in order to be saved. We do not earn God's love. God loved us first. But how do we love him back? By keeping his commandments. Number two, why is it not a burden? Because we, unlike the majority of people in the Old Testament, like all of them, except on rare occasions, we have the Holy Spirit residing in us to give us the power and the strength to, in fact, keep the commandments of God. We have the ability to do that through the power of of the Spirit living in us. That wasn't there before. I mean, 
in my mind, you know, I've got these strange ideas that just come around, you know. Let's say that I ask one of my, I guess it'd be grandkids now, okay, I've got a thousand pound rock in the backyard, go move that rock to the front yard. We had grandkids all week, all week, <laughs> every, anyway. But let's say I told my, I'll get the oldest one, the four-year-old grandson, to move the thousand-pound rock from the front yard, from the backyard to the front yard. Guess what? They can't do it. It is beyond their ability. But if we'd have to make them much older, I gave them a bulldozer and trained them how to use it, and they were much older, they would have the ability to keep that command because they've been empowered to do it. But be, apart from that, I'm asking them to do something they can't do. So we no longer keep the law, we no longer obey the commands in order to earn our salvation, and we are no longer on our own to do it. And we've got to throw in number three just to make sure that we understand. I've told you before, I have this picture in my mind. This is a picture that I think existed in my children's mind when they were younger. I've told you this, right? Over here is fun. And over here is my child. And here is dad standing in the middle, keeping them from having fun. It's as if my only job in life is to keep them from doing what they want to do. And that's how we view God's commandments. There's all this stuff over here that would make me happy. And God is telling me no. And that's it. Why do we believe that? We believe that because the world has taught us that. The world has taught us that in order to be free, the word that is used today is autonomous human beings, I need to be able to choose anything. Guess what? This stuff over here that we think will bring us fun and happiness isn't going to do it. God made us. Do you believe that? God created us. God created us in such a way that certain things work and certain things don't work. I have a confession. My wife has entered the room, so I'm in trouble. Downstairs, I was tempted, and I ate half a donut. Just half. Just half. I'll eat another half when I leave. But you know what? That's probably okay. But if my diet consisted wholly 
solely of donuts, what do you think my general health would be? I don't know if you remember this. It was several years ago. This guy wrote a book. He spent a year eating nothing except McDonald's. Nothing. And his health went bizarre. But even McDonald's said, you're not supposed to eat this stuff three meals a day every day. I've always told my kids, cotton candy. Go ahead. You go to the state fair, eat some cotton candy. But if that's all you ever ate, it's sugar. That's all it is with a little coloring. God has created us that we need to eat certain things in order to thrive. Now, I know there's 100,000 different diet books out there. We argue about that all day long. But I think we can agree. A steady diet of cotton candy and donuts isn't going to solve your health problems. That's, that's just, we understand that. So if God created us physically to require certain nutrition, certain water, certain physical activity, etc., in order to thrive, maybe he knows what is best for us in the rest of our life. I've got this theory, and it's a great theory because it's totally unprovable. <laughs> My theory is this. If I had enough time, I could convince you every law, every command that is in the Bible, I could convince you that it's actually good for you. The problem is, after I made it through the thir first three, say, you'd probably be dead. Okay? Because you'd live your life and you'd figure out, you'd look back and go, yeah, that probably was wrong what I did. I mean, we're talking the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon says, I tried all this stuff and it didn't work. You don't have time to try all the stuff that doesn't work. It'll kill you. It'll ruin your relationship. And God steps up and says, if you follow my instructions, your life is going to be better, abundant. Now, it is interesting. We, as good New Testament believers, look back at all those people in the Old Testament and think, man, what a huge burden they were under. They must have hated that. But even in the Old Testament, there were those who understood that God's law was good. I mean, read Psalm 119, the longest book, I mean, longest chapter in the Bible. Let's just read one paragraph of it. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their own heart, who always do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And he goes on with that same idea for a verse, I mean, a, 
a, a chapter, not a chapter, a paragraph of each of the characters in the Hebrew alphabet, if you've ever figured that out, okay? What is he saying? He says the law is great. Now, I might add, I heard a recording once of a sermon of a pastor, and he talked about Psalm 119, and he said it's probably written by a Pharisee, and he didn't mean that as a compliment. No, it's written by somebody who understood that God is righteous and God has given us righteous rules. Back to the book of Romans. Do you remember? I can't keep the law. There must be something wrong with the law. And Paul says, heck no, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect and holy. There's something wrong with you. And guess what Jesus came to do? To fix that which was wrong with you. So why is the Old Testament law as a means of salvation a burden, but when John tells us to keep the commandments, he says it is not burdensome because we're not trying to do it to earn our salvation. We're doing it through the power that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit, and on top of all of that, it's really all for your best. And I will tell you right off, we live in a society that does not believe that. And you and I have absorbed that thinking from the world around us. Just find some random command. I mean, let's just stick with the New Testament, okay? We'll be good dispensationalists and say, don't worry about the Old Testament. Let's just take a good command out of the New Testament. What is one of the commandments we have in the book of 1 John? Love each other. But I don't want to. I told you I'm rereading Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it recently, read it again. And he says, who cares what you want? Once again, love is a feeling. No, it isn't. But I don't feel love toward this person. So what? Act like you do. Because love is an action. And guess what? If you start acting like you love somebody, you'll probably begin to feel like you love. But the feeling is not the issue. But that's the way we have been taught to think in our modern society. So, How do we love God? By keeping his commandments. That is not how we earn the love of God. Please, please, do not get confused. If you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, do not think that keeping the law is going to make God like you. Because you can't do it. In order to be saved by your own righteousness, you have to keep the law of God from the day you're born until the day you die. If you do that, you're okay. If you think you've done that, talk to your spouse. (laughs) Just saying.
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, let's make sure we read verse 4 and verse 5 together. There are those who would like us to believe that faith is important, but what's important is your faith. It doesn't matter what you have faith in as long as you have faith in something. You know, you have to have some belief that gives you motivation to get out of bed in the morning, and it doesn't really matter what it is. I remember reading a book, I won't tell you the name of the book, you know, about solving problems with worry, I think is what it, the title of the book was. And he says, prayer. Prayer is good for solving worry. Now, you read the chapter and you have no idea who he's telling you to pray to. It's irrelevant. Just pray. You know, just sit there on your sofa like you're talking to the psychiatrist and just tell him all your problems. And that's good for you. And in the same way, today we have this idea, oh, you have faith in that God, you have faith in this God, you have faith in that one or this one, you have faith in mankind, you have faith in this, you have faith in a good bowl of ice cream. It doesn't matter as long as you have faith. If you read verse 4, it says... This is how we overcome the world, our faith. And you begin to think that our faith, my faith, is what does it. But that's why you have to read the second part of it. Whoever it is that overcomes the world, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Your faith is not what saves you. The object of your faith is what saves you. And the object of your faith is, or ought to be, Jesus Christ. Our faith allows us to overcome the world. But it's not our faith, it is our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. So what does it mean? to overcome the world. Now, this sounds really great. And by the way, it is really great. But you begin to think that this means that when I get into a fight, we'll use that word kindly, right? When I get into a fight with the unbeliever down the street, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to get my way. I'm going to win this dispute. I am going to overcome. I'm going to win, win, win. It's the good American way, right? There are winners and there are losers and you don't want to be a loser, right? Jumping over to Hebrews chapter 11. I always end up in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Why? Because it talks about faith. 
And I usually talk about the first half of the, well, the first six verses of the book of Hebrews. You know, there's the definition of faith, and then why faith is important, and then it starts talking about people that you and I are familiar with. Okay, Cain and Abel, Abraham had faith, this person had faith, that person. Great stories. They did great things. But let's jump just kind of toward the end of chapter uh, 11 of Hebrews, just so that we get some idea. Starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? He's been talking about faith the whole time. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the age of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now that sounds great. That is overcoming, right? Let's keep going. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Oh, wait a minute. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Wait a minute. I like the first list. What happened to these guys? What happened to these people? Tortured? Killed? Destitute? But I stopped in the middle of the sentence. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What does it mean to overcome the world? Do you remember back a couple of chapters? John is very adamant. Do not love the world. Don't love the world don't love the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Do not be associated with those things. Guess what things tempt you every day? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Guess what's tempting you today? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What's going to tempt you tomorrow? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's going to tempt you the day after that? And the day after that, and one of these days, if you continue to walk by faith, you will overcome that temptation. You might be tortured. You might be killed. You might lose your relationships you might die a miserable death. And in heaven, God will say, you overcame the world. I've said in here so many times, dying does not mean you lost. It has nothing to do with that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery furnace and God miraculously saved them. 
Stephen was taken out because he was preaching the gospel, and the Jewish community, with Saul, become Paul, involved in it, stoned him to death. Now, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego win, and Stephen lost? Did, were they faithful, and Stephen wasn't? Did God love them more than he loved Stephen? No. But that's our eyes looking at the situation. What is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. What is faith? Faith is taking the promises of God and living according to those promises. Being an overcomer does not mean you're going to wake up tomorrow and win in the eyes of the world, the life's, life's game, whatever that is. It has nothing to do with that. What it means is that God, who began a good work in you, will complete it. What causes us to stumble? We take our eyes off of God, and we begin to look at the storm. Peter, remember? Hey, God, can, Jesus, can I walk in the water? Sure, come on out. And it says he started walking, and then he's looked at the storm. Faith looks at God. Our eyes look at the storm. Guess what? As Ben said just a while ago, we live in turbulent times. I hate to tell you this. There is no political party that has ever been created that is over, going to overcome the world. There's only one thing that is going to overcome the world, and that is our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's it. So, what do I do? Don't love the world, but keep God's commandments. And in all of that, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And remember, love the person sitting at the end of the pew. That's what we're told to do. But I don't want to do that. I don't care. God told you to do that. But that's so hard. No, it isn't. What's hard is living according to your own whims. Because that will not get you where you really need to be. We were created for something. And God is working to accomplish that. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have empowered us to love one another. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.